0: I'm not sure what brimming means, but at the moment we're actually brimming with water and we've got water surrounding the house completely.
1: This is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio
2: Victoria. The arms are pretty good. I were good the other day when a brown snake tried to join me in the kayak.
3: The daily life for farmers along the Murray as the battle against floodwaters continues. We'll talk more about that today on the program. Also hear from farmers further downstream who are buying excavators. Yes, you've heard that right, to better prepare themselves against rising floodwaters. There's also no land as yet available for Charity Blaze Aid to help with the recovery in some key areas. They'll give you an update on the program today as well as foot and mouth disease in Indonesia. Remember that? Remember when we spoke about that quite a lot? Well, we'll get an update on the situation there on the program. Today, we'll hear about uh, also plans to import some live foot and mouth disease virus into Australia too, and whether that is in fact feasible. All of that and more today on the program. Plus, we'd love you to be involved. You can talk about those or any of our other stories by calling 1300 or send a text 0467 Right now though let's get some rural news with Kelly Hollingworth. G'day Kelly.
1: G'day Was. A team from the Bureau of Meteorology has been working to develop a weather forecasting tool which could help prevent the risk of crop disease the bomb says the initiative would allow farmers to avoid unforeseen costs during each season. General Manager for Water and Agriculture at the Bureau, Matthew Colton, says the work will be done over the next six months with hopes of having a disease forecast tool within the next two years.
2: In the grain sector, crop disease risk and its relationship to weather um, has come up as something that's worth uh, exploring. We've known for a long time and there's a lot of research done by state agricultural agencies, by agencies such as the CSIRO, by the private sector, um, that shows the relationship between certain weather conditions and certain crop diseases. And what we're really looking at is if we can see some of those conditions coming you know, using weather forecasts and other products. Can we um, help farmers make decisions that make them essentially more profitable?
1: Continued rain and flooding mean New South Wales is heading for a disastrous cropping year. The New South Wales Farmers Association has surveyed their members and over two-thirds are experiencing flooding for their second year in a row and many are struggling to recover from the long drought years. President Xavier Martin says the whole state is affected.
2: It's not just one valley and it's not just one part of the valley, it's right across the state. And uh, to see this rolling impact going on for a second season, as evidence from our survey, uh, it's really resulting in uh, you know the havoc in the paddocks and the roads. Farmers lost considerable equity through the drought years and the mice plague. And so, whilst we had one Goldilocks year, if you like, in 2020 for most valleys, uh, and made a profit and started to repay some of those debts, certainly 21 and 22 turning into, for many, uh, another really big loss year.
1: Despite the poor crop outlook, giant East Coast grain handler GrainCorp has announced a record profit to shareholders. Managing Director Robert Spurway says increased profits in energy and oil seeds with a big crop last year helped the organisation make so much money.
4: It is a record result for GrainCorp with outstanding performance and $703 million in EBITDA. We've benefited from the second consecutive bumper crop on the east coast of Australia. We've delivered strong supply chain performance and demonstrated resilience in a year of many challenges for others. In short, we have made the most of the opportunities that have been there and the strong demand for Australian grain around the world.
1: The ASX listed company Wellard is looking to add a new vessel to its fleet of live export ships. Called the Ocean Gillaroo, it'll cost around 60 million US to build and will be the first live export ship in the world capable of running on green fuels. Executive Chairman John Klepek says there's been a few hurdles in the way to getting it built.
2: At the moment, uh, uh, because of what's happened uh, with the uh, world shipping in terms of uh, container ships, huge demand, the shipping companies placed a vast amounts of orders, so all the shipyards in the world are c- at capacity and have got forward order books of you know many months so to come to them with a a bespoke product like a livestock carrier and say yes we want this one-off ship built there's just no appetite from most of the shipyards in the world and you need several shipyards to step forward we have one or two that are interested but unless there's competitive tension you're not going to get the commercial outcome that's desirable And and the overlay on top of that is price of steel
1: 60 years' worth of research into honeybees that was at risk of being lost has been digitised, collated and made free to download. Research and Development Corporation AgriFutures Australia says the document, called Bee Informed, encompasses 280 projects funded by the industry. Honeybee and Pollination Program Manager Annalise McGraw says it's the culmination of the levy apiarists have been paying since 1962.
5: They have been investing those funds into research and development since 1962, but what we were finding was with the technology age and and the fact that some of the data is is not always published in journals. It's what's called grey grey publications uh, was just getting lost. Um, within within time and so we decided that we really wanted to collate it all so that people so that we weren't having researchers coming at us with trying to reinvent the wheel more importantly than anything but also to show the value of having a levy for such a long period of time we have a massive suite of documents behind this 60 years of research and development that are all on our website and are available for people. And for today, that's Rural News.
3: Thanks very much for that. Kelly Hollingworth there with Rural News.
5: The Victorian Country
1: Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
3: Let's start with the floods and, well, the situation it's putting a lot of people in. In northeast Victoria, farmers have swapped their tractors for kayaks and boats as flooding continues to spread across their properties. With more rain expected this weekend, uh, those along the Murray River are expecting to be cut off from roads for at least another week. Philippa Noble has been on her farm for more than 30 years, just outside of Rutherglen in the place of Brimmen. And this is the first time they've had to use the boat.
0: I'm not sure what brimming means, but at the moment we're actually brimming with water and we've got water surrounding the house completely. But our little house is finally out of the water and it hasn't been flooded. So the rest of the whole property is underwater.
6: So you're living on the island of Bremen at the moment. It sounds like, um, yes. Philippa, tell me about the last few days at, at your farm and, and what's happened. And
0: yeah, well, we we are down on the Murray floodplain, so we've been kind of preparing for it for a fair while. We've known that, uh, you know, with all the darkness and the dam pretty full and overflowing, that you know anything could happen, which it did happen on Saturday and Sunday when we got that 100 mils of rain. So yeah, for the last. A few weeks we've been moving machines up and moving everything off the, the floodplain, training the stock, the sheep, to eat grain so we can feedlot them if we need to, and then gradually trying to eat all the pasture out to the last minute and then moving the sheep. At, we've got them actually on the road at the moment because that's about the highest plot. We've got a, a few acres up near the road, the front drive, that are actually uh, that are high ground and a couple of other little spots that are inaccessible, but high ground. We've got a few sheep there too, but we can't get to them. Yeah, we've been preparing, and then, yeah, Sunday night, started to come over the next, the next bank that we had, and so we moved the horses and just watched the water coming up over you know, about five or six hours.
6: So your house is now cut off from, from road access at the moment?
0: Yeah, between the house and the, and the road is a dip, yeah. So we knew that, um, that our access would be cut off. We've got a couple of boats. And yeah, moved our vehicles out and things, so so we could still keep a, a fairly normal life, other than having to hop in a little boat and go up the front drive and actually feed lots of sheep up the front drive.
6: So you can still get out to go get food, and you know, take a trip into town if you need to, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, no problems, other than the rest of the rest of the northeast roads. I think that's an issue too, some other road closures. But uh, but no, our road's fine. Yeah, we can get to it. Just have to hop in a boat to start with.
6: Have you ever had to do that before on your farm? Like, have you ever had flood levels this high before?
0: No, we've been here 30 years and we've never had to. We've had, you know, the bottom of the farm flooded, but not, not up this far. And I think 76 records may show that it might have, have been this high before, but we weren't here then. A friend of a neighbour, old neighbour, came for a drive and he said, oh, I think I recall boating down your drive in 76. So, um, So maybe it was this high back then, but not since then. Yeah, what's to be expected if you live on the floodplain? I think we'll be like this for a week or so, and then um, and then we should be able to get the tractor up the drive, and, and then it'll be still just a hard slog then getting getting the rest of the water off the farm.
6: Andrew and Anna Watson live twelve kilometres outside Albury-Wodonga on a two thousand acre cattle farm along the Murray River. Eighty percent of their livestock have already been sent away on a jistman, and Andrew has been managing floodwater on his property for the last thirteen weeks.
2: I've got water in the cattle yards right near the house and all the creeks are pumping. Um, But when you put a drone up and you can see the footage, you get a bit of a shock because the river and all the creeks have busted out and they've spread out all over our country. And so, yeah, 70% of our place is probably underwater and that grass has been under for two weeks, so it's not going to survive. So we're going to go from a full-on season probably into full-on drought mode luckily with all the fodder we've made, we'll be able to feed our way through it, but it's not what we want.
6: Last time I spoke to you was about a month ago and you just sent off um, the majority of your cattle on adjustment. What's been happening on the farm since then?
2: Well, since then, all that country where they were running has gone under. So we've had to do another cut of adjustment. So we've sent another oh, 300 head away. So right now I've got 80 cows and calves, which we AI'd a couple of weeks ago there around the house. And then I'd have 150 heifers with their bulls around the house. So we've got that number on 50 acres, and that's dry. But on Sunday, it all went, I've oh, probably got a couple of inches of water from river flooding and local flooding, because we had 93 mil last Sunday. So that, everything come up, but it's all gone down now. I just love to see the rivers drop a bit so we can get back on country, but I can't see it happening for at least another week.
6: And what's the access like at your farm?
2: Access is interesting. Um, so, our driveway is completely cut off. If it was a bit lower, I could get out by tractor, but there's a couple low lying areas where tractor won't go through. It's probably two or three metres deep. So, currently we kayak out. So, it's a 45 minute trip one way. Currently, my wife Anna is having a day out on the town today. So, she kayaked out this morning, and I'll go meet her in a second. So, I'll jump in the kayak and off we go. So, we kayak across the paddocks. Sad part is the kayaking across perennial ryegrass country. They'll have to restart next year, but that's another matter. She'll bring home groceries for three or four days. We'll pack him in the kayak and come home and try and beat the mozzies when we come.
6: How long have you been in the kayak for? How long have you been having to do that?
2: So that's two weeks we've been doing this. It's all right. It's um, we just know we're just got to do it. We can't argue. There's no other option.
6: Your arms must be getting pretty good then. Yeah,
2: arms getting pretty good. The arms are pretty good. I was good the other day when a brown snake tried to join me in the in the um kayak, but yeah, no, it's tricky. It's you just yeah, get in and do it. The worst thing it's so cold. Usually a kayak is a good experience in summer, but it's been so cold the last three or four days it's pretty fresh in the kayak, so
6: Andrew, how's the communication been, I guess, with uh you know, authorities and water management?
2: We never get enough information. We're always trying to find out more. Um I don't know why they don't give out the information more freely. Um, we've got skin in the game here. I mean, we live on the river, we're part of it, yet they, um, we try and always second-guess what they're going to do. And even sometimes they go complete opposite to where we think. That's the hard one. SES, I think they flew over us the other day. That's the first time we've seen them, um, even though we've been isolated for two weeks. Um, we haven't put our hand up for help, but it's good to see a yellow chopper here and there. But the communication's OK, but it's just... I think after every crisis, there's an inquiry and they try and improve things, well, this one will be a lot more improvement on communication, especially from um, the dam operators.
3: That's Andrew Watson uh, who farms cattle outside of Albury, Wodonga with his wife Anna. He was speaking there to Annie Brown. And, And just a reminder then, particularly from the country, our team here too, if you're not feeling your farming district or your communities either getting enough love or information or being spoken about enough, especially during this flooding event, you can always give us a call and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. 1300 977 22. Tell us how you're doing, where you are. Take us to your town, or you can always send us an email as well, countryhour at abc.net.au. Got some interesting ones this week along those lines. Might have to do a mailbag segment tomorrow. You can add to that, countryhour at abc.net.au. Let's go to another small community now. Farmers around Iraq, which is south of Mildura, are preparing for the rising floodwaters that are flowing down the Murray River. Citrus and almond grower Darren Minter told Kelly Hollingworth he's purchased, wait for it, a brand new earth mover so he can protect his property.
7: We're getting a bit worried about the floods. Um, our old backhoe is getting a bit older, so we traded in on a new one. Uh, to make sure it doesn't break down, because we think we're going to be building some levee banks over the next few weeks, I'd assume.
1: Was it difficult to source machinery like this, given how m- much demand there is for earth movers at the moment?
7: I did mine a few weeks ago. Um, trying to talk to the bank manager. Said, "Look, I need to. I know it's not the right time. Commodity prices are down, but I'm a bit concerned about the floods and uh, the other the older ones playing up." There's nothing really wrong with it, it's just uh, getting older and we need something that needs to go and it's going to do a lot of work over the next few days. So uh, there's a new one sitting at the store, so I've put my name on it.
1: At the moment it's parked where you've only just put in some new almonds. How critical is it that these don't get flooded?
7: If my almond trees get flooded, I've got five days to get the water off and gone and out of the subsoil, otherwise they'll die.
1: Your family's been on the farm for a really long time. You're the fourth generation, your son's the fifth generation you've seen the murray river rise and fall for decades what are you bracing for this time around
7: uh what i've been told by the nba is if we have another rain event which clashes with another flood event happening up the other rivers such as the murray darling goulburn lachlan and um, Bidgee, they'll come to this will be a could be then extreme peak like the 74 five floods Um, So I'm getting ready just in case that happens. At the moment I've been told it's only a half a metre from today, height more which is actually equivalent to a bit higher than a 93 which is quite fine we're all comfortable with that but once it gets there it's not going to go away and we've got to get everything built and done now before it gets there because once it comes up again we're not going to be able to get anywhere.
1: Can you put into perspective how big a job it's going to be to protect your property? What's precisely planned?
7: Um, mainly levee banks. Uh, we've got uh, down here at Iraq, We've got an irrigation scheme. We've got to make sure that the water doesn't enter that, because if it enters that, it can then uh, fast track the water to a lot of lower lying areas, uh, out of the river bends and stuff. So we're just going to maintain it so it doesn't one get to the uh, irrigation system, two around our properties that are a bit lower lying. Uh, put a put a little little levee bank up ready, um, just in case another rain event happens. And actually, I'm not too concerned about this year. I'm concerned about next year. If you look at our history, we've had uh, it was 72, to 72, 3, 4 and 5. They're going multiple years. 52, 3, 4, 5 and 6. And it's the same with um, in the 90s, 89, 91, 92, 93. So it's multiple years. We've had two. Everything got filled up last year. Everything's been extremely full this year. So possibly there could be next year. And that's the one I'm worried about.
1: Have you spent much time talking to your neighbours and are you all working together to sort of help each other?
7: Oh, most definitely. We had a Many Waters Culper Irrigation District emergency meeting today to make sure that everyone understands where we're at, what our threats are, you know, talking to, with myself and Nathan Smart that's been here a long time, Fred Rouse, you know, we've got a bit of history sitting around the table, so we said this is where our danger spots are. Had Owen Russell, he grew up here, so he's seen the floods up here as well for the NDBA. Um, and he brought his concerns we've looked at all those heights and we're actually pretty confident we're right for, for the extreme event not to affect us too greatly uh, we're just building levee banks where we know our weak spots are um, including around my new orchard um, down on Nathan Smart's orchard we spoke to one of the neighbours uh, a week ago saying can we build a levee bank for your farm and he gladly, luckily he said yes. So we're building the levy banks for him, which is the shortest one, to keep that out of our, all our neighbours' farms and ours. So all the houses here should be pretty well safe.
1: This is all happening with you needing to go overseas to the Arm and Border California's conference. Are you still, have you got any reservations about making a big trip and being away from the farm?
7: Very much so. Um, but the tickets are paid for. It's hard to say no. I've got a lot of good people around me and a lot of good neighbours that uh, are all pitching in to helping each other now. So I'm pretty confident we'll be fine. Um, Yes, I am putting a bit of pressure on other people, but I'm pretty confident we'll be right. But next year I won't be going anywhere, just in case. (laughs) <laughs>
3: Two, right? That's Iraq citrus and almond grower Darren Minter speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's 24 past 12. Let's talk about farm repair charity Blaze Aid now, which says it's desperate for more campsites in Victoria so it can get to work on repairing flood damage. The charity says it has plenty of volunteers and funding ready to go, but it's struggling to find suitable bases for operations, especially around the Rochester area. CEO Melissa Jones told Luke Radford they're willing to look for any available location.
5: The flood went through what it almost a month ago and we've been trying to get into the areas particularly around Elmore sort of Rochester and haven't yet been able to find a location for us to set up camp. So we know that there are people that are absolutely desperate in that area and are really in need of our services and our help, and we just need somewhere to go to set up. So, yeah,
8: it's it's been a bit of a challenge. Do you have the volunteers and the funding available to get going now if you had a site?
5: Absolutely, yes. So I've been talking to lots of people in the area, and, you know, we can set up within a week and be out sending sending people out within a week. So we're just waiting for somewhere somewhere to pop up that's got showers, toilets, uh, a kitchen and dining facilities because we do feed our volunteers, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner and power and water for vans because many of our uh, volunteers come and, and they bring their vans along and they stay for a week or a month or a few days. So they just need power and water
8: there for the vans. What challenges have you faced so far? Why haven't you been able to find sites?
5: I don't know. It's quite puzzling because usually usually it's, it's fairly easy. We have communities have to obviously invite us in. Um, we don't just go and turn up and we don't want to be a burden on anyone, obviously. So we wait for people to invite us in. But usually it does not take this long. It, it's often done within a week or so and, and we're good and ready to go on farms or properties and, and helping. But I guess, you know, this, this sort of disaster has been so big that perhaps councils are struggling or sort of still, you know, reeling with, with what's happened. So, you know, it's, it's been a bit of a challenge in that usually we have councils call us and say, yep, come on, you can have the showgrounds here, come in quick. But uh, that hasn't happened so far.
8: You mentioned earlier the kind of facilities you need access to, does it matter where it is? can you can you set up on a private farm if there's say uh, a shearer's quarters or something that that's available?
5: yeah look it, honestly um, to be honest yeah it's not ideal that we set up on a farm, but we will because often the infrastructure isn't there as far as as far as showers and toilet facilities, but that doesn't mean that we won't in fact you know In 2009, the first blaze camp was run out of a shearing shed. So we will. (laughs) We will do it. And even if it's temporary, we will just to get help out there, yes. So, But ideally, we do sort of look for a showground or a hall or a rec centre or something that's got everything there that can can host us.
8: I guess to put it in context, I mean, in terms of how many camps are set up, how does it compare to previous events like the the Black Saturday bushfires?
5: Well, look, floods are different to fires. I think in a lot of ways they're more challenging because it takes time for obviously the land to dry out before we can get onto farms and actually help with the fencing. But in a lot of senses it's it's a lot more devastating in that once the water is receded, sometimes you can't even tell that a flood's been there, whereas the trauma is just as significant as bushfire. So, and the, the other thing is that, you know, a lot of these places have been first burnt out in the black summer bushfires, and then they've had floods, and then they've had more floods, and now they've got another flood again. So it's sort of really weighted, and there's disaster upon disaster and layers and layers of trauma there. So, Um, And I know that, you know, they're a strong, resilient bunch, but sometimes our fellow Australians just need a leg up, a bit of a hand and a bit of mateship goes a long way. So this is what we're all about.
8: And just quickly as well, are you facing similar challenges in New South Wales?
5: Yes. New South Wales has been better. We are setting up a camp currently in Cootamundra that will be up and running probably early next week. But yes, I think with the expanse of of this disaster, I would have expected a lot more camps up and going now, by now. So we're also sort of looking around Forbes, Parks, uh, Molong, that sort of area that I'm actually in talks at the moment to set uh, a camp up in Molong. So that's going to be happening, I guess, in the next week or so. But yes, the more camps the more we can help. And we sort of do like a radius of about 50 kilometres of the damage. So, you know, we we don't ask our volunteers to drive, you know, more than an hour because that actually takes away from the time on the fence lines. So within an hour's distance um, from our base camp is, is sort of our maximum before we have set up another camp.
3: That's Melissa Jones, CEO of Blaze Aid. there, speaking with Luke Radford. They're very easy to find online or on social media if you want to get in touch or try and speak to them about possible land that could be used. You're listening to the Country for Weather Report on the way. Then we're going to talk about foot and mouth disease. Uh... It's been brought up in Parliament this week about bringing some of the the virus into the country. Uh, And we're also going to get an update really on the Indonesian situation and how things are looking there as well. With uh, People we've spoken to quite a lot throughout the outbreak there. Uh, I think it's an important time to get an update on foot and mouth disease. So that coming your way. Before we do any of that, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines this afternoon. Courtney Howe has those details for us. Good afternoon, Courtney.
9: Good afternoon, Watts. The Premier Daniel Andrews has promised to double the mental health workforce if he wins next week's state election. Mr. Andrews pledged $67 million to deliver six new mental health and wellbeing services across the state. Labor's also pledged $10 million to plan for another 2020 mental and wellbeing clinics. The The rail, tram and bus union says a lack of transparency over contractors working on the inland rail puts the whole project at risk. In a in addition to an independent review of the project, the union has outlined concerns about the use of contractors with track records of poor quality work and poor workplace safety. Inland Rail says it's committed, alongside its contractors, to the safety and well-being of its workforce and the community. The conservation regulator is calling for information about illegally dumped tyres found in the Enfield State Forest near Ballarat. The regulator says more than 150 tyres were found at Monmouth Road last Sunday and has expressed concern as the tyres can pose significant risk to both people's safety and the environment. Anyone with information is urged to contact the authorities. Ten Mildura residents have been arrested in relation to $650,000 worth of fraud offences. Police allege those arrested engaged in fraudulent activities such as creating fake businesses and lodging fraudulent ABNs to obtain a GST refund they were not entitled to. The arrests were part of the Australian Tax Office's Operation Patago, an investigation into widespread GST fraud and specially trained sniffer dogs have been sent into the Victorian Alps with the hopes of saving a critically endangered native frog. Experts estimate there are fewer than 500 bore frogs left in the wild and biologists have previously only been able to monitor them by listening for the male frog's mating calls. Now two dogs have been trained to safely sniff out the red frog allowing scientists to better track their survival rates and that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon was.
3: Those dogs sound a lot more trust Worthy than my dogs. Thanks very much for that, Courtney.
9: On ABC Radio Victoria,
1: you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour.
3: Now, I wrote down a text for our Weather Bureau because we didn't quite get to it yesterday. Uh, Basically, a simple text. We got to the Country Hour yesterday saying, when will the rain hit on Ballarat on Sunday? And anyway, uh, I was ready to read that to the Bureau today. When another text arrives... Uh, from the same number, saying, Hi, I have a horse running in the Ballarat Cup on Saturday. I don't want a wet track, so what time's the rain hitting Ballarat? Thanks. I love how the extra reasoning has come out over the last 24 hours. Don't worry, anonymous texter. I was ready to find out about Ballarat rain for you, amongst the other weather that we're expecting right across Victoria over the next week or so. Hannah Marsh can take us through all of that and more senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Hannah. Good
10: afternoon, Warwick.
3: <laughs> Hope you're ready with your Ballarat information. But to get there, we'd better find out what's happening around Victoria today. What's it look like?
10: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're under the influence of a high-pressure system at the moment, which is seeing uh, maximum temperatures around the uh, 15 to 19 degree mark. So it's been up to 19 degrees at Hopetown, 18 at East Sale and Mildura, 17 so far at Shepparton and Albury, at 16 for Horsham and Melbourne and also at Bendigo. It's been up to 13.4 degrees at Ballarat so far. We're just still seeing some isolated light shower activity really on and south of the ranges and about central and eastern parts as well. But having said that, the falls that we've seen since 9am have been generally less than 3mm and we do expect that to ease and clear as we head into The uh, later into the afternoon and towards evening period. For tomorrow, we're looking at um, becoming a little bit warmer with the winds tending more northerly, so maximum temperatures around that uh, 20 to 25 degree mark for tomorrow, so getting up to 23 degrees and sunny for Melbourne, 26 and mostly sunny for Mildura, 23 also at Horsham, 22 for Bendigo, and Albury-Wodonga and getting up to uh, 21 at Ballarat and 20 for sale tomorrow. We're looking at some um, patchy morning fog around, but otherwise it's generally gonna be a dry day. And as I mentioned with those northerly winds, just um, becoming a little bit more milder. And there is just a slight chance of seeing a spot or two about the far east of Gippsland Uh, during the morning. Otherwise, it's not until we get the front coming through on Saturday that we start seeing some shower activity. So in relation to your Ballarat question, look, there'll be a spot or two Saturday morning um, and then the shower activity will start setting in late morning. It will briefly clear late afternoon before redeveloping in the evening, but there is also the chance of seeing some thunderstorms at Ballarat as well. Um, But again, we're looking at that late morning, early afternoon sort of period for that. So depending on when uh, that horse is running, (laughs) uh, fingers crossed that it is earlier and uh, the track gives the optimal conditions.
3: Yes, well, that anonymous text. hopefully, I don't know what time the Ballarat Cup is run, but it's probably in the Arvo. So uh, good luck with that. Uh, Anyway, uh, rain-wise for the rest of the state on Saturday and Sunday, what's it looking like?
10: Yeah, so we are looking at that uh, scattered shower activity increasing from the west during the day. In terms of uh, thunderstorms, we are expecting thunderstorms mainly about western and central parts whereas the showers will extend throughout the state. Uh, There is the possibility of seeing um, some pockets of heavier totals with the rainfall and also uh, in the northwest of the state, we are talking about the possibility of seeing um, some fresh and gusty winds as well as uh, that system does move through on Saturday and even uh, overnight into the early hours of Sunday as well. The shower activity will uh, continue about central and eastern parts on Saturday, but it will ease uh, during the day. Uh, We're looking at still mild to warm conditions with the northerly winds, but on Monday behind the system, we are expecting a fair amount of cold air, so much cooler temperatures really to start off uh, next week.
3: And just a couple of quick texts, uh, message. Everybody wants a personalised weather report for, from you today, Anna. Uh, Colac. What we started? <laughs> yeah, when's the rain reaching Colac on the weekend? Similar time to Ballarat, I imagine.
10: Yeah, I was just about to say, it's going to be pretty similar. The chance of a spot or two during the morning, but uh, increasing
3: late morning. And uh, one from Canaver, so right on the border region with uh, South Australia. There frost the last two mornings in Canaver, a mild uh, point negative 0.3 and a negative 0.5. No more is needed as lentils are looking okay. Well, what's left of them, says this text messenger. Uh, But with the mornings, well, getting slightly warmer over the next few days, does that mean the risk of frost is reduced?
10: Yeah, it does. So there's still a risk about eastern parts of the state, but uh, yeah, for the western parts, we are looking at those minimum temperatures uh, increasing and therefore uh, less frost.
3: That's enough for today, I reckon, on the personalised reports. We'll save the other ones for tomorrow. But, Hannah, thanks very much for the update. Much appreciated. Thank you. Hannah Marsh there, senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through the full forecast today on The Country. You can get those texts in. We don't mind a personalised weather report any day, really. Send a text, 0467 842 722. Let's turn our attentions away from floods. Uh, from the response as well, and back to a virus, which well had agriculture very worried earlier this year, and that being foot and mouth disease. After successfully importing lumpy uh, lumpy skin disease live virus to Australia, Australia's science agency, the CSIRO, now wants to import. Foot and mouth disease live virus. The government research agency made the submission at a public hearing scrutinising Australia's biosecurity preparedness. But the process is complicated and checks and balances needed to be in place before it can happen, as Megan Hughes reports.
11: The Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness is a high security lab in Geelong run by the CSIRO for diagnostics and research into exotic animal diseases. They've been at the front line of the fight to keep lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease out of Australia. Senior principal research scientist Dr. Vulna Fulsler is involved in the work to create an mRNA vaccine for the diseases. She explained to the Senate committee why they would need to import live virus testing for the fmd mrna vaccine will be done
12: yet acdp but it will not involve any live virus so we will be looking at the serological responses um, against that vaccine and senator maybe if you don't mind me just adding that mrna is one platform of um, vaccine development um, there are other platforms that we could potentially work on as well and a big limitation for us is the fact that even if we work on platforms and we design something new, um, the difficulty in doing the full range of testing that you would need to do is limited by the fact that we don't have access to the live virus. So we will have to go elsewhere if we want to test the, the vaccine and the ultimate, ultimate test for a vaccine is to, to challenge the animals and see that they are indeed
11: protected. And that is the step that we can't do. Dr. Vulna Fulsla, according to the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, no import permit application has been made. While there are vaccines available for both lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease, mRNA vaccines are considered cheaper and quicker to produce because they're synthetic and don't require animal or microbial products, unlike traditional vaccines. But bringing in a live virus increases the risk of an outbreak in Australia. FMD in particular is a highly infectious disease with a range of potential transmissions. Dr Chris Parker from DAV explains what would need to happen if an import permit was sought.
13: Currently the importation of foot and mouth disease virus is prohibited without an import permit issued under the Biosecurity Act. Also, if it was to go to ACDP in Victoria, my understanding is is it'd need a permit under a Victorian Act as well, the Livestock Disease Control Act. But obviously before uh, we would issue an import permit, I would anticipate a very similar process to what went on with the importation of live LSD virus into the country would go on. And that would be an assessment of the ACDP facilities to ensure that they meet... The absolute highest, most current standards that are around for the importation of and holding of such a, uh, um, such a virus. Um, I would remind you that there are places in the world where there has been escapes from the facilities. I'm not suggesting that that would occur from ACDP, but of course we would have to ensure that facilities were absolutely top notch before we'd even contemplate mm-hmm. doing something like this. I would anticipate the Minister, like he did last time, would require the Inspector-General of Biosecurity to run a risk assessment over it and run his eyes over the whole process before it was to proceed. But once all that is completed and we have a risk assessment and we're comfortable, we would be comfortable with the facilities at ACDP, and that's an if at the moment, given the age of that facility, we would need to then issue an import permit and the virus could then be imported. There would likely, as there are with LSD, a whole range of conditions on that import permit around the purity, around the way it's kept, about what can be done with it, all those sorts of things. And I would be simply speculating at this time as to what conditions it would come under. But I would just reiterate, there is no proposal at the moment to import FMD virus into Australia. And I certainly, as the area who would be doing the risk assessment, am not aware of anything in that that realm.
11: That's Dr Chris Parker. Given the volatile nature of trade relationships, importing live virus could have an impact. Nicola Hinder, acting Deputy Secretary of the Agricultural Trade Group within DAF, says it would need to be approached in a careful and considered way.
12: We would either need to predicate that with a very large communication, targeted strategy and campaign to our trading partners to actually explain the basis upon which we were importing the virus. Now, be that for scientific, technical assessment purposes, be it for preventative nature, that really wouldn't matter. There will be some trading partners that would automatically jump to the immediate assumption that because Australia has imported the virus, we effectively have the virus and so therefore we're looking for the vaccine. And so sometimes those are the much harder um, perceptions to be able to counteract by communication.
3: That's Nicola Hinder, Acting Deputy Secretary of the Agricultural Trade Group within DAF, uh, the Department of Agriculture with the Government, finishing that report from Megan Hughes. You're listening to The Country Out, just on the situation with footmouth disease in Indonesia. uh, The President of the Queensland Live Exporters Association, Greg Pankhurst, has spoken to graziers in Mount Isa this week and has talked about the situation he sees in Indonesia and this is what he's had to say.
4: As of today, about 5.8 million vaccines have been distributed throughout Indonesia, uh, are mainly into the cattle population, so we, we shouldn't forget that, that uh, buffalo and pigs and goats also will contract foot-and-mouth disease. So, as I said earlier, 65 million animals need to be vaccinated. Uh, we're about 6 million at the moment, so it, it's time-consuming, but it has been rolled out.
6: And just to provide context for Australian graziers and farmers, what has that rollout been like? Have, has it been smooth?
4: So initially uh, there was a lot of confusion in Indonesia, very difficult to um, acquire vaccines. there need to be a number of legislations uh, approved to bring in uh, FMD vaccine, which which hadn't been brought into Indonesia for some 40 years. So it was slow. Uh, so between May and uh, end of June was when we first saw our first vaccines roll out to a a very limited few Um, but it it has been slow Uh, but I believe the government and in with especially with the uh, national disaster um, body overseeing it at the moment they're doing a reasonable job.
6: For graziers in Australia what are we looking at in terms of export numbers are we looking to get back to normal levels?
4: Yeah, let's see, I, th- I think it will get back to normal levels, but it's not so much foot-and-mouth disease now. All animals which um, enter Indonesia now immediately on discharge in, in the feedlot they've been received in Indonesia will receive a foot-and-mouth disease and, a, and m- in most cases a lumpy skin disease vaccine as well because they're naive as they come into the country. Um, so this year it's been quiet, but a lot of that quiet uh, exporting is due to the, the price... So we've uh, we've seen record prices again out of the north uh and you know Indonesia's probably just not in a position to be paying those
3: prices. If that is Greg Pankhurst president of the Queensland Live Exporters Association speaking there with Lucy Cooper that's the industry view but what's the the wider view about how things are looking in Indonesia at the moment and what does it mean for us? Simon Quilty is a meat industry analyst and he can join you now to talk about those exact things. Simon Quilty, welcome back to The Country Hour.
14: Thanks, Warwick. Nice to be with you.
3: You've recently been to Indonesia. You've had a look at, at, at the situation there for yourself. You've heard from the experts and been reading those reports. Do you think Indonesia is getting on top or will get on top of FMD?
14: I don't to be honest. Um, I think that what's come out of this is the concentration on Bali and the fact that today you know the number of uh, vaccinations in the cattle population of Bali you know they've had their first vaccines and they're on to their second. Um, so that's good news. But if we looked at the whole of Indonesia, The rate of vaccination across 64, 65 million, you know, cloven hooved animals only sits at 9%. And Warwick, we're five months into this disease. So to me, you know, much of the discussion amongst players on the ground at the moment is not necessarily about eradication. It's about control because the belief is the diseases, both diseases are endemic within Indonesia, as it is across many Southeast Asian countries.
3: So does that mean the risk of foot and mouth disease coming to Australia, either via travellers from Bali or some other way from Indonesia to Australia, remains?
14: I think that it's very clear that the risk through Bali has reduced dramatically, um, and that is because that first dose has been very effective. It gives about 80% coverage, um, and Full credit to the Australian government, you know, I think we've donated now $4 and the majority of those um, vaccines have gone into the Bali region. So that's removed that tourist, I guess, concern that we had right at the start, but it's the rest of Indonesia for both lumpy skin and foot and mouth disease that is a genuine concern. So you might say everything outside of Bali is of great concern.
3: And just on that too, you you were one of the early people calling for a, a ban on Bali travel for tourists. Um, obviously, then since then there was a, a big government and industry and authority response to that, putting in place things like foot mats and and heightened alerts to those travelling to the areas to to protect Australia from the disease. Um, have has the the response and the ability to keep the virus out from Bali travelling to Australia surprised you?
14: I, I think that it has been the appropriate response. And I think that without that early call to say, should we look to ban, uh, tourism? Really, you might say got people, um, going and, and action being taken. Oh, you're taking so some no credit, Simon du- Quilty. Well, I don't know whether, because many others jumped on board as well, Warwick. So, um, but I think what it did was, tourism in Bali is of a major, you know, earner for the country. So therefore, the number one priority became vaccinating Bali itself. Now, if there wasn't the threat of stopping tourism, would that have occurred? Equally, we've put, you know, maps in at airports around Australia, we've introduced Laws, et etc, around you know discouraging people from bringing food in, I think all these things were related to the fear of you know stopping tourism and that relationship with Indonesia. They are our fifth largest customer in terms of meat and in terms of wheat, our number one customer and once again, we do not ever want to blindside Indonesia like we did back in two thousand and eleven with the live cattle export trade. We need to work closely with them. So to me, calling for a, um, a ban on tourism truly got some outcomes.
3: And I suppose that leads us to where to from here. If you believe foot and mouth disease is now endemic in Indonesia, what should Australia be doing to help Indonesia? And what kind of response are you expecting from Indonesian authorities?
14: I think that... There, To me, you know, we came back from this three-day conference and it's called CCFMD, which has met for the last 20 years with some success in terms of the Philippines eradicating foot and mouth disease back around about 1999, 2000. But out of the 15 countries that attended, 10 uh, have got both diseases endemic, that's foot and mouth and lumpy skin and it's extraordinary, the commonality amongst them all, in terms of what the problem is. So in terms of Australia, I came back with some recommendations, and one of which is, you know, the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness in Geelong, Our the mature discussion is needed to have about bringing in these diseases for which we are to become world experts on. We need to better understand them. So. To me, that's the first thing is that we need to step up and have that mature discussion about the exotic diseases that we can study and work upon within Australia to become world experts. Secondly, I think CCFMD, the one organisation that is looking to control foot and mouth disease, we should continue funding. And unfortunately, you know, the two previous years, funding from Australia had dried up. Other countries had stepped up. But I think you know the attendance by Australia was exceptional at that meeting that I went to. That the um, the government department of agriculture and fisheries and forestry came to it as as, as well as CSIRO. So to me, that ongoing funding is needed, and p- potentially the role of that organisation is to include lumpy skin disease.
3: And, and can I ask you about lumpy skin disease now? Because it's certainly, in, as far as the two. The reporting on the two diseases foot and mouth does steal the headlines because it's better known and there's a great fear in australia about foot and mouth disease getting here but lumpy skin disease isn't a isn't a good thing for livestock either and it's insect born does does that mean you have a greater fear about it actually arriving in australia than foot and mouth
14: i i think there is and, and in actual fact i've just got back from northern queensland addressing um graziers up there and it is no doubt to me that lumpy skin disease, I think now, poses a far greater threat to Australia than foot and mouth disease. And that's because these um, the vectors, these insects, blood-sucking insects, can be carriers of it. And it's those cyclonic winds that occur during the monsoon season, the wet season in the north, which we're coming into now that is the real concern, that they be brought into northern parts of Australia. So I think in terms of priority, to me, lumpy skin disease should be actually at the top of the list. And we need to have a better understanding of the disease itself. Um, And lots of lessons to be learnt from India, for example, at the moment, which has had three months of the disease really being out of control. 2.4 million infections 110,000 deaths so far. Uh,
3: Livestock deaths?
14: That's correct.
3: Wow. That is certainly something to watch. Simon Quilty, thanks very much for the update. We'll certainly have to watch this space on, on what happens not only with foot and mouth disease, but as you say, lumpy skin disease from here.
14: Great. Thanks, it.
3: Simon Quilty, meat industry analyst, speaking to you there. You can let us know what you think. Interestingly, on the text, uh, Jono on the borderline says, there's 200 billionaires now in Indonesia. Why are we paying for everything, including stockyards? Uh, Jono, we're not, really, and we've sent 5 million uh, vaccines, but they're looking at 65 million vaccines vaccines in Indonesia against uh, foot and mouth disease and the argument being about Australia helping Indonesia is uh, we're basically paying to protect ourselves by better controlling the disease in another jurisdiction to try and stop it from coming from Australia but I take your point thank you for that and this one says why import foot and mouth disease if you could do the vax testing in Bali or Timor it's not that far and it mutually benefits Australia and Indonesia Australia did set up the, the actual agriculture Victoria had a big role in this setting up a lab for uh, vaccination um, development and, and testing in East Timor. And that lab's still there today. That's an interesting point. Thank you very much for sending that in. Might be something worth uh, following up further. Well, this program following up further one day as well. In the meantime, speaking of following up further, we better find out what's happening at livestock markets around our state today. Let's go there now.
13: Dollars,
3: you to market, to market. Just a couple to get through today. Let's go to Bansdale to begin everything with Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Brendan. G'day, Warwick. Numbers increased to 210. That's 20 more with
4: most of the usual buyers operating in a cheaper market. Quality was limited with cows and bulls representing the majority of the sale. The market was somewhat cheaper but hard to quote due to technical issues. Heavy beef cows sold from 310 to 378 heavy bulls sold from 320 to 378. This is
3: Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Oh, short one from you today, Brendan. Thank you very much. For that, we'll go to Wagga Wagga for the sheep and lamb market report for you. Uh Leanne Dax has that. Good afternoon, Leanne.
12: Good afternoon. Lamb numbers more than halved this week with twenty seven thousand nine hundred lambs and twelve thousand sheep. Quality was fair to good, while young store lambs have gone off in condition due to the wet weather. The limited supplies rallied the market with prices roaring back twenty to thirty dollars and more in places. Hoggets for the better end jumped fifty dollars. Twenty-one to twenty-four kilo for young lambs, one seventy-five to two fifteen, averaging around eight hundred and forty cents a kilogram carcass weight. Twenty-four to twenty six, two hundred eight to two thirty five. 26 to 30, 226 to 258, over 30 kilos, 258 to 267, heavy old lambs, 228 to 304, merino hoggets, the better end, 143 to 211. Crossbred hoggets, 168 to 185. The Mutton Market improved. Heavy Merinos, 125 to 150. The Heavy Crossbred Ewes, 120 to 168. And Trade Sheep, $90 to 118.
6: Leanne Ducks, MLA.
3: Thanks very much for that, Leanne. Just before we get going on the Country Hour today, have some homework for you. Well, that's if you want to take part. We've obviously got a big state election happening at the moment. On Monday's Country Hour, I reckon it will be, we're going to have a look at what's being promised to you, not only from the major parties, but also some of the minor parties to do with the Victorian state election. Some of those ideas about agriculture and whether to uh, make cuts or whether to promote certain programs, whether, whether to make changes to animal welfare laws, all of that and more. I'd love to know what's important to you, what you think... We should include in that what is a key for agriculture. Someone sent some lines about the veterinary hospital. I'll happily follow that up and try and include that in that program. But what's on your radar? Is it agriculture specific? Is it more about roads to you? Is it about rail? Is it about something else? Send us an email with this with your thoughts, countryhour at abc.net.au. You can send us a text, zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. but it might be easier actually to send the email, countryhour at abc.net.au. What is important to you this state election? I really want to know uh, what is on your list. Just before we finish it up, the Country Hour, remember the website, all the rural news is up there for you now, including a lot of information on how farmers are adapting to climate change. Catch you soon.